You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Our scripture passage for today is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5 and verse 17. After the death of Aaron's two sons, which happened when they approached the Lord and died, the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he cannot come whenever he wants into the holy area inside the inner curtain to the front of the cover that is on the chest, or else he will die because I am present in the cloud above the cover. No, but Aaron must enter the holy area as follows, with a bull from the herd as a purification offering and a ram as an entirely burned offering. Aaron must dress in a holy linen tunic and wear linen undergarments on his body. He must tie a linen sash around himself and wrap a linen turban around his head. These are holy clothes. Aaron will first bathe his body in water and then put them on. He will take from the Israelite community two male goats for a purification offering and one ram for an entirely burned offering. No one can be in the meeting tent from the time Aaron enters to make reconciliation in the inner holy area until the time he comes out. He will make reconciliation for himself, for his household, and for the whole assembly of Israel. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you're joining us for the very first time here today, uh, today is actually the final week. It is the last week of our sermon series we've been in all month long, a sermon series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. You Lost Me at Leviticus. One of my favorite quotes uh, comes from the author, pastor, and theologian Richard Rohr who says that the best critique of something bad is practicing something better. Any of you have heard me reference this quote before. The best critique of something bad isn't to get on social media and whine about it, isn't to hail insults from the cheap seats. You want to critique something bad, unfaithful, unhealthy, show me something better. And I love this quote so much because I feel like it embodies so much of the ethic of this place, the mission and ministry of our church. But furthermore, it absolutely impacts how and the ways in which we go about reading and studying Scripture. For example, if you read Leviticus in this sort of overly simplistic, surface-level type of way, you end up with a book that could actually do a lot of harm. And read in a certain way, in an overly simplistic sort of way, it can be read as a book that uh, communicates exclusion and condemnation and legalism. It can paint a picture of God who is violent, even. But read in a more holistic way, one that pays really close attention to context and makes use of science and scholarship and historical and cultural scholarship might just pave a path to help us redeem parts of the Old Testament that are so hard for some of us 
to make sense of. And so this conversation uh, that we're engaging today uh, on Leviticus is really to help reframe our reading and our understanding of this book, to reframe and understand Leviticus, not as the destination. This was not the destination. This was never the ultimate desire or design that God had in store for humanity, but rather it was a step towards the destination. Framed in this way, we can understand and be confident that Leviticus wasn't the final picture of who God is and what God's like and what God demands of us, but rather it was a somewhat blurry picture of God still coming into view. Read in this way, we can read Leviticus not as one, a story of legalism, but of liberation. And all that's really, really important as we move into our conversation for today. You see, uh, if this is your first time here with us, uh, lucky you, I believe we saved the most important conversation for last. Today, we are going to dive into probably what is the most important theme, the single most important theme that shows up in the book of Leviticus time and time and time again, which is this. How do we find, how do we discover forgiveness when we've made a mess of our lives? What does Leviticus have to teach us about the process for reconciling with God when I've wandered off the path, I've acted contrary to the person that I'm supposed to be, contrary to the person that God wants me to be? What does Leviticus say about that? What do we practice today in relation to that conversation? Why is there a difference, and how do we make sense of it? For answers to that, we've got to dive in a little bit further. So, if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, go ahead and crack them back open to Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. If you're watching this online, feel free to hit pause and find a smart device and uh, follow along, track along with us there. As you do so, if this is your first time sort of getting into the book of Leviticus and broaching this subject, uh, you don't even have to be a scholar. You will find out pretty fast that the, con- the way in which Leviticus speaks of sin and transgression and forgiveness and reconciliation is wildly different than the world in which we live in today. For example, what constituted as a transgression, as something that made you guilty back then, is wildly different from today. Take, for example, Leviticus chapter 19. That states you are prohibited, you are commanded, you are not allowed to ever, under any circumstances, breed two types of animal, two breeds of an animal. And so what that means is those of you who look at pictures like this, and you feel warm and fuzzy. So if you have golden doodles uh, at home, sinners, all of you, transgressors, every single last one of you. So you get these weird passages that seem to paint a very, very rigid understanding of what's guilty and how you're guilty versus non-guilty. And the process for which you make up with God, the process for which where you make amends with God, goes into labor of taking painstaking detail of every single nuance and caveat that you have to follow so as to make sure you do it right. For crying out loud, Aaron had to wear a special type of underwear in order to be made right with the Lord. Amen? So we read this book and it's just strange. It's strange, and it's wildly different from our world today. And this is why it's so important that when we read the scriptures, we read them how they're always supposed to be read, as a book of gradual revelation 
rather than fixed revelation. Meaning, when you open the Bible, when you crack it open, when you're in those early books, you're interacting with a people group who were very early in their relationship with God. They, were, they didn't have a whole history with God yet. They certainly didn't have access to Jesus yet. And so they're operating with an incomplete picture of who God is. And they're trying desperately to make sense of it. They're trying desperately to make sense of who is this God and what does this God actually want from me? And on top of that, they're having to do that while surrounded by a bunch of different religions, a bunch of different nations that said very compelling things that influenced them and how they believed and what they believed to be true about God. And so here's what we know. Here's what we know. By the time we reach Leviticus chapter 16, this is 3,500 years ago, still very early in the story, what we know is that the people of Israel held some really concrete beliefs when it came to sin and transgression, being guilty versus not guilty, and how you worked that stuff out. Chief among them were these three. The three beliefs that Israel held at this time, here in the time of Leviticus chapter 16, is number one, uh, they believed that God kept score. They believed that God kept record of every wrong, every transgression, every mistake they ever made. And we see evidence of this all over Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 7 lays out very clearly the process you are to follow in order to perform a guilt offering. Whenever you're guilty of doing something God told you not to do, you are to do that. Otherwise, you are alienated from God. Secondly, we see examples of this littered throughout the book that some sins can't be forgiven. That some sins, it doesn't matter what kind of offering or you know, sacrifice you perform, you're still guilty and deserving of death. I went back and counted them. I read through Leviticus uh, this week, and I counted 28. There are 28 capital sins in the book of Leviticus, 28 things that if you did them, doesn't matter. Mercy doesn't apply. You're going to die. And thirdly, you saw this in our passage for today. They believed that if you had a shot, a shot at getting right with God, finding forgiveness with this God, it was on you. You paid the price. You sacrificed the valuable thing. You got rid of the thing that meant the world to you in order to be finally freed from your transgression. Sometimes it was a bull. Sometimes it was a lamb. Sometimes it was a pigeon. There's actually such thing as a libation offering whereby you were required to pour out one-fourth of your household's wine. Now, we're a young family with two kids, and so I feel like I would have been negotiating with the priest a little bit and say, you can take all of my livestock for crying out loud. Like, it's hard out here, okay? We need something. Amen? Help a brother out. So here's what I want to do today. I want to hone in on these three because these are the reoccurring things that show up, beliefs when it comes to forgiveness or ever finding reconciliation with God. And I want to break them down a little bit. And the reason for which is because if you just give it time, if you read enough scripture, you keep going beyond Leviticus. We don't lose yet Leviticus. You keep going. What happens is you watch one by one, each of these become undone. You watch each of them, as we like to say. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't have a long shelf life, right? They didn't last. didn't age well. Let's go with the first one. The first one, this idea, this belief uh, that God kept score, that God kept record of every single wrong thing you ever did. And unless you made amends quick, fast, you were alienated from God. Well, that's all fine and well to believe that until you stumble into passages like this one. So we're not even out of the Old Testament yet. 
Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, the author is writing about his particular experience with God, what he's learned of God. He's 200 years forward uh, from the the person who wrote Leviticus. And what he's found to be true, what he's learned about God as he's watched God interact with us is this. This is God speaking. I, the Lord, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And for your own sake, I remember them no more. This is the famous forgive and forget passage. Now notice it doesn't say we can do that. It says God does this for us. Psalm 103, the author, still learning about God, says, I don't know, man. I I learned that God takes my transgressions and removes them as far as the east is from the west. And then we move into the New Testament, and Paul writes that famous note in Romans chapter 8. What does he say? He says, Dude, I don't don't know everything, but all I know is when when God deals with me, when God deals with all these people, I now know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilt, no shame. God, don't play that game. And so you keep reading and you find this, that God doesn't keep track of all of our mistakes. Instead, we have a God who's way more interested in our relationship than rules. This God is much more interested in facilitating a very messy relationship, an imperfect relationship with us, rather than keeping score, keeping a spiritual report card on how good or how faithful you were that day, that week, that month, that year. It keeps going. This belief, this second belief, that, well, you know, that's fine, but, like, there are some things that... They're just too far. They're too far. It's beyond the line. God can't forgive. God can't show mercy or compassion for that. That's fine and well and good until you run into the story of David. David, who, yes, did a lot of wonderful, beautiful things for God, but also committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then had Uriah killed to cover it up. That's two capital offenses in one. But in Psalm 51 he discovers to his shock God's compassion. The author of one's, uh, Psalm 139 found the same thing. I love how, like, real Psalm 139 reads, how raw and how honest it is. Like, I, Kyle translation is like, good Lord, I can't go anywhere where you don't friggin' stop. You'd never quit on me. You never bail. If I do, if I go uh, up to heaven, so if I do all the right things, I do all the heavenly things, all the godly things, you're there, sure, But I've found, even if I go down to the grave, even if I make my life just, I make all the most destructive, death-filled decisions in the world, even there, you won't stop. You won't quit chasing me. And so we move into the New Testament, and Paul writes, again, the famous line, Romans 8, also. I'm just convinced now there ain't nothing, there ain't nothing that could separate us from the love of God. There ain't nothing That's beyond repair. You're never too far gone. Nothing outpaces my grace. And then thirdly, this belief that, again, we see all over Leviticus chapter 16, if you want to be right with God, you got to pay the price. you got to come up. you got to solve the debt. you got to sacrifice the thing that's valuable to you. Jesus, what does he do? He puts it to bed forever. In Hebrews chapter 9, I love this. The author, so Hebrews is written sometime after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so this author is really trying to grapple with, they're trying to process, like, what the heck just happened? What did this Jesus guy just do? And this is a Jewish person. And so he writes this down. He says, he 
entered once and for all into the holy places, just like Aaron did. So he's reenacting what happened in Leviticus chapter 16, but he's doing it once and for all. It don't ever have to be done again. And he says it wasn't by means of our goats or our calves or something valuable to us, but it was by the means of his own blood that he secured our eternal redemption. Put simply, there's a lot of Christianese. Put simply, what we watch Jesus do is what any good parent in this room would do. Any good parent in this room knows that if ever you found yourself alienated from your child or estranged from your child and a price had to be paid, a debt had to be paid, any good parent in this room says, I'll pay it. I'll do it. I don't care what the cost is. I don't care what it takes. I'll do it. And so Jesus fundamentally upends this belief they've had for centuries that they have to pay something. Jesus says, nah, dude, been paid. Done. Finished. In the aftermath of that, he sends humanity on this beautiful tailspin. This is why we're still talking about it. 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, we're still grappling with this earth-shattering news that there's quite literally nothing we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God, that it's all been forgiven. There's nothing i got to come up with. All i got to do is present my heart and myself to this God, and it doesn't make no sense. And that's actually kind of the problem. You see, there are topics that pastors are more or less nervous to preach upon week in and week out. And one of the topics that I'm always nervous to broach is this one. Reason being is this is not a taboo conversation. This is like the opposite of a taboo conversation. So if you saw that for, we were talking about forgiveness today, you're like, oh, good Lord, I know where this song is going. I heard this. I bought the shirt. Like, I know all this. Like, we've heard 20 million sermons on forgiveness. It's what Christians love to talk about. We talk about grace. We talk about compassion. We talk about mercy. Like, we've talked about it so much that I would argue, quite frankly, it's gotten confusing because some people mean something wildly different when they talk about God's forgiveness as opposed to sometimes the way Jesus talks about it. And so as a result of that, time and time again, why I get so nervous is because I watch people all the time. I watch Christians and churches all the time fumble this topic. I watch them fumble it in one of two directions. One thing that we do uh, whenever we encounter the gospel, we encounter this beautiful, unbelievable news that this God loves us and has done everything possible to forgive us and to make amends with us. The first temptation or tendency that we fall into uh, is we don't trust it. Yeah, you never admit it. You never admit it in church. You never admit it in Bible study or a small group. But deep, deep down, you're like, yeah, I don't know, man. That's still a little good, too good to be true. That deal's a little bit too sweet. How many of you would say, um, it's okay, safe space. This is a church. You can't be honest in church. You can't be honest nowhere. How many of you would say trust is hard? It's hard. Which, by the way, uh, you can always find out uh, someone's real answer to that uh, when you're sitting with your partner and you're watching a show and you can't find the remote and you ask them if it's under them or not. You'll find out real fast if you have a person who trusts because if they say, yes, babe, I've checked, it's not there, then great. Uh, some of you, if you're a trusting person, will go, okay, well, then I'll start looking somewhere else for it. Uh, but if you're like me, you'll say, get up. I want you to shake out that blanket, take that park, like, take the jacket off. We're going to search this whole thing, flip the cushion over. Some of us, 
That is how we engage life. I trust that I'm going to verify that stuff every time. And I get that. I get that. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I will say it gets a little tricky with faith. It gets a little tricky with faith. Because if you can never, ever get to this place in your relationship with God where you trust grace, you just can never get there. You can't get to this place where you trust that it really is free. Then what you'll do, and I've watched this time and time again, what you'll do is you'll play a different version of the same game found in Leviticus 16. You'll come up with some different version of the same game whereby you're in control. You earn it. You don't have to trust the grace. You're going to trust your actions. You're going to trust your standing. You're going to trust your ability to do the right thing versus the wrong thing. Or you're just going to trust, I'm a good person. God understands that. It's fine. Like You are going to play the same game just using different pieces. And I'll tell you what's so startling to me. As a pastor, one of the scariest things that I see is there are not just Christians out there, but there are more churches than I care to admit who actually, at the core, fundamentally do not trust in grace. How do I know that? Because it looks sort of like this, and some of you have probably been to churches like this. They come at you first, like their first impression game is so strong. Come on in. The grace is free here. Forgiveness is free here. Anything you've done, it don't matter. You can say all of it to us, and we ain't ever going to be offended because the blood of the lamb covered that, erased it. It's gone forever. It's wonderful. It's the best news you've ever heard. And you won't be five minutes inside that church before you get hit with all the fine print. Well, yeah, it's free only if you prayed the prayer. Did you pray the prayer? Did you do the Romans Road prayer? Did you say the words? Did you skip step three? Did you do all of it? Did you do all the prayers? Did you say the right thing? Just Jesus in your heart and Lord and pray to save your Lord Jesus. Did you do all those things? Okay, well, let's move on. Let's talk about your beliefs. Let's talk about the things that you believe in, all the hot button issues. Let's check those off. Woo, that's a little heretical. Don't say that in front of nobody. Okay, uh, let's talk about your lifestyle. Let's talk about how you live. Let's talk about the people that you love. Oof, uh, I don't know about that. Uh, worldview. Let's talk about your worldview. Like, how do you see other people? Do you hate the same people that we do? Do you oppose the same people as we do? We really don't like them, so you've got to start hating them. You got, you don't, we don't like them either. We just, uh, we just kind of talk about them, but we don't really, like, do anything to them. And so, like, let's check out sort of all those boxes. Okay, 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 okay. Now, it's free. For a group of people that talk a lot about a God with unconditional love, we sure do put a whole lot of conditions on it. Because we don't trust it. It feels too good. It feels too, gosh, it feels too good. I'm just going to trust myself. Maybe that's your struggle. Maybe you came from a fundamentalist church or something like that, and that's been your struggle with this whole conversation on forgiveness. Or maybe not. Maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe that's not the direction from which you came into church today. Maybe for you, you actually come from the opposite extreme. You see, the other thing I watch as a pastor all the time is, again, this news about God's forgiveness and reconciliation is so earth-shattering, you have no idea what to do with it. So you either t uh, don't trust it, or what is the opposite? You take advantage of it. 
And some of you, that's where you're coming from. You're like, no, 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 like, I actually believe it's true. I actually believe it's real. Like, the grace is as good as it sounds, and it's amazing. And, like, um, there's nothing that stands in the way of God and my relationship with God and God's embrace from me. But slowly but surely, what begins to happen is you put so much emphasis on what God has done that in some sort of twisted way, you interpreted that to mean you don't have any responsibility or reaction to that. You've confused God for some worker at Disney World, right? It's incredible to me, by the way, how they can anticipate your needs long before you even know your needs. They do all the work. You show up. You literally just sort of exist there. You do nothing. In some sort of twisted way, we've sort of placed that dynamic on top of our relationship with God. And slowly but surely, we put so much emphasis on all that God has done for us that we begin to slowly but surely. We don't say this out loud, but deep down in our actions, we don't actually do anything. Faith just is this thing you got to do when you feel like it. It's not really ever a big priority. It's not something you super care about. You don't, you don't, you've lost sort of an interest or a, a reason to do devotions or in your private sort of spiritual life. You don't, like, you're not, like, worship, public worship's not a big priority to you. Serving your neighbor, getting involved in the causes that are caring for the marginalized and the impressed and those who are hurting. It's like, yeah, like, it's extra credit. Like, I'll get to that if I got time. Me and God are good, though. Me and God are good. Like, I prayed the prayer. Like, I, <laughs> I've been forgiven. Like, we're set. I wonder all the time, I mean, I fall into this too. And when I do, I wonder all the time how hard that's got to be for God to be in a relationship with somebody like that. I was in relationships with people like that. I was thinking a lot this week about my own, like, relationship life in high school. And uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you are someone who, whenever you entered into relationships, you are the one who fell hard and fell faster than the other person, we're going to have a support group after church today. We're going to tell our breakup stories. It's going to be wonderful. Anyway, but I was one of these people. And so one of the things that I always found to be so, what's so sad and so backbreaking about that is you could be with someone, you could want it for the both of them. And all they have to do, when they've been acting a fool, showing no interest or any commitment or not even looking your direction, the only thing they got to do is say sorry or just for a moment act like the person they used to be. And what do we do? Oh, well, just come on back. Come on back. Come on back. But real talk. Real talk. Sometimes it scares me that I feel like some folks think we can, we're in that sort of relationship with God. That I prayed the prayer, like I did the thing, I converted, like I have a church affiliation, like it's, I've done, it's fine, like it's been forgiven, we're all good, like I don't need to necessarily invest in the relationship, or if it turns out I did, I can just wait till the 11th hour and I can just say sorry, and then he's going to let me in, so we good. I don't know. Well, it never works like that. There's a couple passages in Scripture that say that Jesus loves us so much, God loves us so much, that God gives us the desires of our heart. Now, we twist that to mean sweet, so like God's going to give me like sweet stuff and shoes and like cars and houses. Like, no, no. It means that you have a God that loves you so much that God can do nothing other than allow you 
choose whether you want him or not. Whether you want a life with him or not. And if it actually turns out, by way of your actions, words or whatever, if it turns out that by way of your actions, what you really want, it ain't God. It's God's stuff. I want God's mansions and forgiveness and peace and direction. I don't really want God as much as all God's cool stuff. Like, if you want a divine vending machine, here's the thing that I know about God. God will let you run after that. He'll let you pursue that. It just won't be with him. I'll close here. Band, you can come on up. So what do we do? What do we do? This whole conversation on forgiveness, what do we do? Again, some of you, maybe you're in that first camp. You're in the camp that's like, bro, I'm so tired. Like, I'm so tired of playing this game of trying to earn it, trying to achieve it, trying to get in a place where I deserve to be forgiven. I'm tired of playing that game. I can't play it no more. Others of you are in the second camp where maybe you didn't grow up in that, you know, shame-filled religious culture, and so you're just like, yeah, it's like all love and wonderful and beautifulness, um, but for you, you're like, oh, I don't really necessarily know how much responsibility of the relationship I've actually been given. I don't know how seriously I've taken it. I've just sort of been like, sweet, boxes checked religious-wise, I'm good. Whichever direction you're coming from, you might find yourself today asking, so what's the alternative? I can say I'm tired of those games all I want, but what do I do in its stead? And if that's you, the best alternative I have uh, comes by way of a story. In college, uh, I had a favorite professor. My favorite professor uh, was a guy by the name of Bud Bentz. Bud was my Christian theology teacher. Uh, he was also my pastoral ministry teacher, so I knew I was becoming a pastor at that point, and so I was studying to become a pastor and a minister. And what I loved so much about Bud was his rawness. I loved how he was so willing to be open about his doubts and his struggles and the questions that he still had. And good Lord, I'll be to hear someone into his 50s with a PhD in divinity and biblical studies to own that there's still places in his faith where it's still mysterious and there's still room to poke and prod and figure out what this God is doing. I'll tell you, it's just liberating for me. Liberating for me. And not just for me. There was a whole bunch of other friends who felt the same way. And so at the end of the semester of Christian Theology 1, everyone was writing him letters and writing him emails and sending him stuff, just thanking him for the influence, the impact he had on his life. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. Last day of the last class, he stood up. And he said, listen, I've gotten a lot of letters and emails from y'all, and it's touched me. It really has. Um, He's like, but I need you to hear this in love. And he's talking to a bunch of future Christian leaders. Some of us went on to become pastors. Some of us went on to serve in the church as laity. He said, if you're really grateful, if you're really thankful, don't buy me nothing. Don't thank me. Help me. 
help me. He's like, when you look at the religious scene out there, you look at the scene in our country and the world out there, good Lord, like, don't thank me. Help me. Join me. Like, let's be witnesses of light in the midst of darkness and faith in the midst of despair. Let's be people who preach radical love and inclusion in pockets that like to say, no, you got to be this or do this to be welcomed by God. Let's be these people who, it just almost doesn't make no sense what's got a hold of their life. In a way, I feel like that's the message today. Don't just be thankful. Live thankful. Embody thankfulness. That's the move. That's the response. You don't earn it. You just embody it. Because who knows, someone might just come across your life and they might look at the things that you've been forgiven from and the things that you have been redeemed from and they may realize for the first time ever in their life that the God they always hoped was real, the type of forgiveness and liberation they always hoped and prayed was real, just crossed their path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's children say, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.